Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. When I left this church in 1988, I went to the Evangelism Division of the Baptist General Convention of Texas and worked under Dr. Carlos McLeod. Some of you remember him from this area of West Texas. Carlos McLeod believed in Texas so deeply, he told me one day, there are two kinds of preachers in Southern Baptist life, those who pastor in Texas and those who want to. And if you've ever pastored in this good state, you understand that comment. I would go a step further and say to every preacher that I know, ask God on your way to heaven to let you minister in West Texas. What a wonderful place to serve God. This good church is an example of that statement. Your pastor has been with you for 30 years, good years. It was my joy when I was leaving to have the pastor search team say to me, Don, would you kindly give us a recommendation for our next pastor? And I gave them David Wilson's name. And he came. And I'm grateful He's, he's rubbed that in through the years, the fact that God led me away so that he could come. I would receive notes from time to time in my office in the Baptist building in Dallas, and I would think to myself, this is a word from my good pal, David. He's sending me a letter to say, what a good job you're doing with the evangelism division in our state. And I want to commend you and encourage you. And I would open the envelope, pull out the letter, and instead it would read, I'm so glad God led you away from Southcrest. (laughs) But I understand that, good buddy. I really do. What a great church. I want to say to you, on this 30th anniversary of your pastor, His son said something a while ago that's true. There's not many pastors that stay 30 years. But I want to add a little statement to that. There's not many churches where pastors want to stay 30 years. I'm sorry to have to say that. I wish I didn't have to. Uh, I know it's not always the church's fault by any means. Sometimes it's we preachers' fault. That's the truth. But you are to be commended. You're the kind of church that people want to stay at. I will tell you, I left here and went to the convention. At that time, that job was the most visible job in the state of Texas, But I will tell you that the hardest experience I ever encountered, the hardest decision I ever made, was to leave this church. I've never gone through anything with such turmoil and struggle. Uh, 
Carlos McLeod would call me and say, has God spoke to you yet? I'm still struggling. I haven't got a green light for sure. And he would say, keep praying. Finally, after about two months of that, my wife looked at me one day and said, you know good and well God's leading you to that job. So you need to go ahead and go. And we did. And you're glad. And I want to tell you something. I'm glad because I wouldn't have wanted anybody but you to follow me. I am so glad you did. I love you, brother. He's my pal. I want you to know that. And when I step out of this body into eternity, step into the presence of the Lord Jesus, I hope I'm so old that it's hard for you to get on the platform, but I've asked him to preach my memorial service. So I have to be nice to him. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly, and so I want him to say some nice things. But I, I will tell you, I don't intend to be present. <laughs> so whatever you say, it doesn't matter. All right. Well, I want you to open your Bible, if you would, to one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following. Paul the Apostle is writing to the church at Corinth, a troubled church in a wicked city. It kind of reminds me of our times. We're in a day when Christianity in America is under attack. Have you noticed that? The identity of Jesus is being challenged. <clears throat> the Bible is being held in question by this secular society. So what are we to do in the midst of all of that? I will tell you it's what you've done in all of these years as a church. One of the reasons the hand of favor has been on your pastor is because you've done this. He's done this. One of the reasons the hand of favor has been on this church is because you've done this as well as he. And all the staff, you've magnified and exalted the Savior and you've preached the cross. So listen to the word of God. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. <clears throat> but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. <clears throat> For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Some translations read about that last statement, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe or the scholar? Where is the debater or the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased <coughs> through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we, we preach Christ crucified. Amen. To Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to us who are called, that's just another word for saved. 
salvation. For those who have been drawn by, convicted of, the Holy Spirit of God turned to God in, re <coughs> in repentance and, and in faith. And Jesus has changed their life. To those who have been called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Some time ago, Dr. Benjamin Carson spoke to a breakfast in Washington, D.C., and he began his comments that day by telling this story. It's the story of a young businessman who delighted in giving his mother expensive and unusual gifts on Mother's Day. He found two birds that could sing, dance, and talk, and he decided that they would be a wonderful gift for his mom on that special day. The birds cost $5,000 each. The man made the purchase, had the birds shipped to his mother's address. A few days after Mother's Day, the man called his mom to see if she had received the birds and if she liked the gifts. His mom said, yes, son, I did receive the birds, and did I like them? Why, son, they were delicious. <laughs> the man said, mom, don't tell me you ate those birds. Those birds could sing, they could dance, they could talk, they cost $5,000 a piece. To which she said, well, son, they should have said something. <laughs> we must be faithful to continue saying something about the good news of God's grace never deviating from the only saving message, the message of the cross. In our text, Paul the Apostle writes to the church in Corinth, which he planted on his second missionary journey. Now time had elapsed, and he writes this letter to that church on his third missionary journey, and he writes it from the city of Ephesus. Corinth. Corinth was a city that needed the gospel. The Believer's Study Bible speaks of the city of Corinth as the meeting point of important land and sea routes. It was a very prosperous city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. The Corinthians were noted for their philosophical and rhetorical abilities, and also they were noted for their vices. This was partly true because Corinth was the center for the immoral worship of Aphrodite, goddess of love, whose followers practice ritual prostitution. This large cosmopolitan city had such an evil reputation that it was said of them to Corinthianize, <clears throat> meant to adopt a sinful, immoral, drunken lifestyle. And it was into that setting that the Apostle Paul came with the message of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that many of the Corinthians heard the message, believed, and were baptized, and that was the beginning of the church at Corinth. But by the time of this letter, this church, without a doubt, had become the most troubled church in all the New Testament. It was richly gifted in spiritual gifts, yet torn by worldly wisdom and the awful wickedness of that city. The shame of this church was this. The city of Corinth was not being transformed by the church's presence there, but rather the church was being infiltrated by the worldliness of Corinth. 
Instead of this church bringing the transforming power of the gospel to bear on that city, the believers were succumbing to the sins, the belief systems that surrounded them. <clears throat> Listen to some of the problems that existed in that church. They were focused on human leadership rather than Jesus. They were admiring human wisdom and became caught up in the pride of intellectualism. They were judgmental of one another. They permitted immorality to exist in the church membership. They took each other into the world's courts. They misused their liberty in Christ, thus becoming a stumbling block to other believers. They were selfish. They were greedy. They even abused the partaking of the Last Supper. They magnified some gifts while minimizing other gifts. Some people in that church even questioned the resurrection, meaning there were deep theological issues within the membership. They were unfaithful in so many ways, but especially in their giving. This was only a few of the problems that existed in that church. Let me ask you, as you hear of churches around the country today, do these problems sound familiar to you? It's almost as if we could move that first century church into this 21st century Western world and it would fit quite nicely. This church desperately needed a move from God. It needed God to bring them back to unity. It needed God to bring them back to purity and holiness before him. God wants us to be one. Do you remember how Jesus prayed for his people? He said, Father, I pray that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I'm convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that it still grieves the heart of God whenever there is confusion within the church of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle believed that the cross was the unifying factor for every group of people called the church. Therefore, in this first chapter, after speaking to the divisions that existed in that church, he goes immediately to the cross. Why would he do that? Because the cross is the pinnacle of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. What this church needed was a fresh glimpse of the cross. At the cross, individually, we find peace with God. But I will tell you, at the cross, division in churches are healed as well. The remedy for this situation did not lie in signs and wonders, miracles, but in the wisdom, or in the wisdom of man, but in the power of the cross. Paul understood that not all people had a correct view of the cross. He magnifies this reality by pointing to a, <coughs> a contrast between the foolishness of men, which the world thinks is wisdom, and the wisdom of God, which the world thinks is foolishness. You see, what he's doing is addressing the different views that people have concerning the cross. I want you to look at these views Paul points out in this writing and make a comparison to our culture, to our day. There's still views like this in our world. First of all, I want you to see the views 
of the skeptics. The Bible says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, we still have skeptics when it comes to the message of the cross. My wife and I have a friend who now lives in heaven. We're grateful. But before he was converted, when we would witness to him, he would respond like this. I wish I could believe like you. I wish I could, but I just can't. I wish I could believe that a Jewish carpenter in his early 30s could possibly be God in human flesh. I wish I could believe that, but I can't. I wish I could believe that a man in his 30s would, would be executed on a cross so many miles away from where I live and you live in a remote part of the world, and that man could possibly take my sins upon himself and pay the penalty <coughs> for my sin. I wish I could believe that, but I just can't. You see, the impact of the cross is determined by an individual's acceptance of its message. Those who are perishing have one view of the cross, while those who are being saved, they have another view altogether. Those perishing reject the meaning and the message of the cross. They don't realize it, but it's true. For them, perishing has already begun. The Bible says they're condemned already. And it will con continue unless there is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Fred Howard wrote of those who were perishing in his writings saying, unregenerate people tend to become worse as their minds increasingly become hardened against the Holy Spirit's convicting power. They are at present perishing, and this process will continue throughout their life until they step into eternity, and then they will perish. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross, he says, is a foolish message. Then he illustrates this truth. He says, to some, the cross is a stumbling block. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks are for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. To some in Paul's day, the message of the cross was a stumbling block. It was offensive. It was unacceptable. Why? How in the world could the message of Jesus dying on a cross possibly be offensive to anyone? I believe this is the reason why. The cross is offensive because it calls on man to do nothing but accept by faith Jesus who died on the cross and accept him as the only way to have a relationship with God. It's offensive to mankind because it awakens man's awareness to sin and its penalty. To think that by the death of one man <clears throat> on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, in a part of the world so far from all of us, that would determine the destiny of every person who ever lived. To some, it is foolish. It's unacceptable. You see, it allows no room for man's merit. It allows no room for man's attainment. It allows no room for man's goodness. It allows no room for man's wisdom. 
It allows no room for man's pride to the natural man. The message of the cross is a stumbling block. It's foolish. Look at verse 22 through 24. For indeed Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In order to get this across with meaning and with effectiveness, he gives some examples. Examples of two people groups that existed in Corinth at that time. For example, there were the Jews. The Jews demanded signs. Not only do they, did they want a, a sign, but they wanted a miraculous sign. The Jews would not believe that a divine act was occurring if there wasn't a miraculous sign associated with it. They looked for the sensational. Remember the second temptation of Satan? He confronted Jesus with. He challenged our Lord to climb to the highest point of the temple and to jump. He said, your safe flight downward will convince the Jews that you're God's only begotten son. And then again, while Jesus was dying on the cross, the Jews cried out, <coughs> he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we will believe. Give us a sign. Show us the miraculous. Show us the sensational. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. But no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You understand that mankind still longs for signs. I had a friend who some years ago worked in an attorney's office, a law firm in Dallas, Texas. And during the lunch hour, he would witness to his co-workers in that firm. One day he witnessed to one of the co-workers who responded to his sharing the gospel like this. He said, if Jesus would reappear, walk into this office complex and tell me that what the Bible says is true, then I would believe. You see, to him, the simple message of the cross was foolishness. The Greeks, they were in Corinth. The Bible says the Greeks look for wisdom. John MacArthur writes, the ancient Greeks were in love with philosophy around which their culture was built. They had perhaps as many as 50 identifiable philosophical parties of movements which vied for acceptance and influence. Each had its views of man's origin. Each had its views of man's significance. Each had its views of man's destiny. Each had its <coughs> views of man's relationship to the gods, little g, of which they believed there were many. And the Bible speaks of the Greeks in Athens saying, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Dr. Fred Howard, who was head of the Bible department at Wayland Baptist University when I was a student there, had a book that he wrote entitled Guidelines for God's People. And he said to an educated Greek, the idea that his eternal well-being was dependent on his faith in a crucified Jew was ridiculous. These people believed that matter was evil, 
Therefore, God taking on human flesh and dying on a cross was unthinkable. Listen, Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those of us who are being saved. It's the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, what looked like a foolish act when Jesus was nailed to the cross was wisdom on the part of the Heavenly Father. What looked like weakness and failure when Jesus was nailed to a cross was really a demonstration of the power of God. It was through that event that our sins were taken care of, that Satan was overthrown. And so to we who are being saved, we have a different view. There are skeptics out there, still there. But we're not a part of that. Uh, we're a group that's been to the cross. We know something about the power and the impact of the cross. Uh, we understand that when the Bible says for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We understand what that means. Uh, that statement for us who are being saved is interesting. Some people question that. You understand, don't you, that the, the Bible speaks of salvation in three different tenses. The Bible says we have been saved. That's justification. We are being saved. That's sanctification. We're being changed daily into the likeness of Jesus. We will be saved. That's glorification. For we will be like him. We will see him as he is. Another way of looking at it is like this. I have been saved from my past sins. I am being saved from the power of sin. And one day, thank God, I'll be saved from the presence of sin. And then there's that word power. Look at it. Dr. William E. Stepp, professor of church history for many years at Southwestern Seminary, said in class, and I wrote it down. For you preacher boys, I want you to remember this. I've noticed when I preach on the message of the cross, there's an unusual manifestation of the power of God. And that's true. I preached in services where I looked at the audience, it looked like they were not with me. They were somewhere else. And then I would come to the message of the cross and their eyes would rivet toward me and they would give their attention to the possibility of their sins being forgiven and they're going to heaven when they died. Amen. That's the power of the cross. That word power is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word dunamis. From it, we get our word dynamite so that some people say that the cross is the dynamite of God. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Think about the power associated with the cross. The cross has drawing power. There's something about that message that draws people to Jesus. 
You remember when Peter preached at Pentecost, he said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up and put an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And how did they respond? They were drawn to that message. The Bible says they, when they heard it, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. The cross is like a magnet drawing metal to itself. It has power, drawing power, quickly. Secondly, the cross has redeeming power. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ at the cross. Jesus bought us, as it were, from the slave block of sin. He set us free from Satan's grasp over our lives. The cross is our redemption. Songwriter put it so well. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Oh, the message of the cross. But the last thing is, the cross has changing power. I'm not talking about simple change like making people good or good people better. I'm talking about dramatic change, unbelievable change, making dead people alive again. That's what I'm talking about. In Ephesians 2, 1, the Bible says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sin, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Angel Martinez put it like this. He said, prior to Jesus going to the cross, people went there to die. But after Jesus went to the cross, now people go there to live. I like this. Twas a life filled with aimless desperation. Without hope walked the shell of a man. Then a hand with a nail print stretched downward. Just one touch and a new life began. And the old rugged cross made the difference. In a life bound with heartache and defeat. And I will praise him forever and ever. For the cross made the difference for me. That's why, folks, your preacher declares and preaches the cross. That's why this church teaches the cross. That's why this church presents the message of the cross. We preach Christ crucified. John Henry 
Jowett, who was in the early 1900s, <coughs> said to be the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world. He said of the preaching of the cross, we do not whisper it. We preach Christ crucified. We do not timidly submit it for subdued discussion in ac academic settings. We do not offer it to the hands of exclusive circles. We preach it. We stand out in the like a town crier in the public square and we proclaim to the common indiscriminate crowd the cross. I'm determined, Paul said, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want to tell you what I believe. I believe that the hand of God has rested on your pastor all these years because he stayed with the message of the cross. I believe that the hand of favor has rested upon this church because all of these years we have stayed with the message of the cross. I still identify with you. I'm telling you folks, the old rugged cross makes the difference. Changed my life when I went there. When I came to Jesus, who took my sins upon himself at the cross, he redeemed me. He set me free. He changed my life. He's still changing my life. And he'll change yours. So I'm asking you today, if you've never come to the cross, in your heart of hearts, to do it now. I'm going to lead you in a prayer like I prayed as a teenage boy, very similar to the prayer. I prayed as a teenage boy. It went something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose again so that I could have life everlasting. And Jesus, I accept your forgiveness. I want you as my Savior and my Lord. You say, Brother Don, do I have to pray those exact words? No, no. You're not saved by prayer. You're saved by Jesus. But prayer is the avenue through which you express the deep desire of your heart to him. So pray your prayer. Just acknowledge that you're a sinner. Say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I come to the cross. And church, make a commitment that you'll never leave this message. I know your pastor won't. Some of you are on the run from God today and you need to come back to the cross. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And so I invite you to do that. Some of you need to move your membership into this church, a place that always exalts the Savior, a place where you can worship God and learn about Jesus, a place where you'll hear this gospel message. It's a good church. It's one of the best. 
If I lived within 50 miles of this church, I'd join right here. I want to encourage. It's not the church nearest you. It's the church dearest you. I want to encourage you to come and say, yes, I want to be a part of this. I want to trust Christ. Whatever God's dealing with you about, do it now. Father in heaven, this is your invitation. Sweet Jesus, draw people to yourself. Redeem those who need to be bought back from the slave block of sin. Change lives. I give you this invitation. Father, as we stand to sing, help people to come. Just a moment, just a few seconds, we'll be on our feet. Don't wait for anybody else. God spoke to your life, just step out and come. There's pastors here to receive you. Come to Jesus. I promise you, you'll be glad you did. Let's stand quietly. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.